Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Blues and folk singer Karen Dalton was a prominent figure in 60s New York. Idolized by Bob Dylan and Nick Cave, Karen discarded the traditional trappings of success and led an unconventional life until her early death. Since most images of Karen's have been lost or destroyed, the film uses Karen's dulcet melodies and interviews with loved ones to build a rich portrait of a singular woman and her hauntingly beautiful voice. Boy, is that the case. She has an amazing voice. Mm. And I don't think you could teach that voice that, that she it's just an amazing uh, instrument. And the film is called, In My Own Time, A Portrait of Karen Dalton. And we're joined today by the co-directors of this wonderful documentary film that will be premiering at the Doc NYC Festival starting on November 11th. And that would be Robert Yapkowitz and Richard Pete. To both of you, Robert and Richard, welcome to Film School Radio. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. This is a a wonderful film and a wonderful story on a a lot of levels, um, not the least of which is for many of the people who will be watching this film, they may have never heard of Karen Dalton. And if they have heard of her, it's probably more in a passing sort of reference like I have for her. Um, Tell me what drew you to her story and what how did this kind of get underway? I'll, uh, either one. Richard, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. Um, Rob and I were both uh, really big fans of Karen's and um, the the documentary film uh, Be Here to Love Me had just come out and it was about, uh, or we had just seen it, it was about Tom Van Zandt, who's one of our favorite musicians. And, um, at, you know, at first we were kind of bummed that now people were going to know about this secret musician that that we liked. And, and it, that just like wasn't the case and ended up, you know, his music became more popular and, and, you know, we were able to share it more. And uh, we were at a bar talking about it and we were listening to the jukebox and we were bummed that um, all of Karen's male peers were on the jukebox, but Karen wasn't, wasn't anywhere on there. And, you know, people didn't know who she was. So we concocted a plan to make a documentary film in six months, uh, premiere it, get Karen's name out there. And, and she would, you know, everybody would know who she was. Um, that was like uh, six and a half years ago. So we weren't able to make it in six months. Um, but um, yeah, we're, we're, we're very excited to, to, you know, help tell her story. Um, there are a lot of like myths about Karen's and there's a lot of um, false information on, on Wikipedia or just stories about her that, that weren't true. So we're excited to like clarify those elements as well. Yeah. Well, Robert, did you have any idea of the challenges you were going to be facing in making this film in that there's very little real like audio or video record of her life? It is it's it's not a lot. And what 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 there was apparently, and I don't want to give too much away, you didn't have access to. (laughs) Um, Um, It was challenging. We knew it was going to be challenging, but we didn't know how challenging it would be we had heard that there was very little archival materials related to Karen around. Um, But we thought to ourselves, you know, we're They just haven't been looking hard enough. We were up for the challenge. Yeah, exactly. We were, we were going to find a, you know, a treasure trove of stuff that nobody had ever found though. That wasn't the case. Like you said, we did come up with a few things that we're especially proud of and some things that were like, you know, supposedly didn't exist. We were told many times that a few things that we did find just didn't exist and they were myths. So 
we were lucky to find more than there was, but yes, it was challenging and we had to be uh, clever about how we told the story and kind of the tools we used to tell the story to hopefully keep it interesting. Yeah. This is our first time making a documentary also. So it was, you know, there were all of those challenges that came along with it. Um, luckily, there's like a, a few folks out in the world that are, really love Karen and have um, done a lot of work over the years, re-releasing her, her songs and, and trying to find all the photos and video and, and, and tape clips that exist, um, like Light in the Attic and Mark Lynn. And they were so helpful throughout the process. They're, they're like friends now. Well, for our audience, let's describe... I did a little bit in the introduction, but let's describe what makes her unique, what makes her special, what, why are you drawn to her? Robert, I'll start with you. What was it about her? Well, um, there, it, in two ways I was drawn to her. I was drawn to her story and how it was sort of portrayed through these other articles. A lot of times she was sort of treated as a tragic figure and sort of victimized and, and criticized oftentimes in like these articles we were reading online and uh, I think we saw her a different way we saw her as like a, a someone who was brave who sort of fought for what she believed in so right there immediately I was like we both thought we're like oh they have it all wrong we have to you know we have to sort of change the narrative altogether when it comes to Karen's life that combined with her sort of this vulnerability that Karen has Karen has this vulnerability that sort of you know some people might say it held her back in a way but it also allowed her to access her emotions in this really deep way, which in turn created her entire body of work. Like you said, her voice, it's not something that can be taught, you know, the way it sounds like that's not, it just came from her. And I think her relationship with her own fragilities and her own vulnerabilities was also super interesting to us. Yeah. And I think, you know, just the songs that she chose to play and how she played them and rearranged them were, you know, there were songs old folk songs that lots of people were doing and, and she made it completely original and, you know, her, her style of, of picking guitar and her voice, uh, you know, we were just immediately drawn, drawn to her. Yeah, she's totally unconventional in everything she did, the way she lived her life, the way she approached her music, fascinating. Again, how, for our audience, how would you describe her voice? Uh, I mean, it's got a horn-like quality to it. Like you said, you know, there's definitely hints of Billie Holiday in there, but maybe with more of a folk twist or a country blues twist to it, it's haunting. Yeah, there's some haunting elements in there, for um, sure. Yeah, it's really, I mean, if people know Joanna Newsom, you can hear some influence in her voice. Yeah. Um, even people like Devendra Banhart, you can hear a little influence, you know, it's um, in that world. But yeah, somewhere between Billie Holiday and, you know, a country singer, almost. Is that, yeah. Can I just throw in a, a, a characterization that I felt when I was listening to it? Immediately, Please. she sounds like an old soul. Yeah. You know, That's there's something very lived in in her voice, very lived in in the way that she approaches a song. And for me, and for someone who is a music fanatic, to hear her is immediately uh, to, to understand that she was willing to, to let the space of a song be present, like in her, right. in her phrasing, the way she played the guitar, she left these open spaces in, in the telling of the story of the song, which is for me a great characteristic because it pulls me into a song where they're this sort of uh, allowing the air to breathe, allowing you to breathe, to take in a song that way 
is is just a real talent. It's an, and not many people can do that. I would say Billie Holiday does that. There yeah. are a few great singers who just there's just enough of that space between the notes where you lean forward a little bit to hear what's going to come next. So for me, that's what she sounds like. So yeah, it's a great characterization. Yeah. Absolutely. You what you do have in the film. You got her daughter. You've got her some ex-husbands. You've got you've got a number of people. Tell me a little bit about approach, approaching them uh, to be a part of this because she also left a lot of wounded people in her wake, right? Mm -hmm. So her, her daughter Abby Baird uh, is in the film. Her 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 second child. Uh, and tell us a little bit about sort of your approach to Richard. You want to start with that sort of an approaching. <laughs> Yeah, um, Abby was one of the first people that that we wanted to to contact to see if you know she was open to working with us. We couldn't track down her contact information, but we found a restaurant that where she worked. So Rob called there a few times and was able to connect with her. And, and her initial reaction was just like, "Nobody's going to want to watch a movie about my mom. Like it, it's not, you know, it, there's, she's not going to be able to reach an audience. Like it's don't waste your time, sort of vibe." Um, I, I think. Um, there had been a few other filmmakers who had approached her or had tried to make a movie about Karen in the past, but just couldn't because of the lack of information. So some of the friends and family were just a bit like exhausted on telling the stories. Um, but once we got in there and, and they met us and we spent time with them, they, they opened up and were willing to, to share with us and, and um, it wouldn't have been possible without them. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, at this point, we've been talking to Abby for five years <laughs> yeah you know like monthly at the least so it's like we know her well at this point yeah. you know and we just went back this time last year yeah this time last year we went back and, and we interviewed her for one final time and interviewed karen's granddaughter as well and it was great to see or to hear her talk about her, her grandmother's influence and some of her friends had already heard her and she's a big joanna newsome fan and, and her joanna referenced karen and something and it's cool to just hear like this new generation and, and how uh, proud her granddaughter was. Yeah. I think because her music and the way she approached it was so uncompromising that it's the kind of music that'll hold up for a long, long time. Right. I, that's how I, when I, when I hear that she led a vagabond life, right. She just didn't seem to feel she was comfortable for a little while, one place, and then she wasn't. And then she moved on and she kind of did this back and forth, particularly with the New York folk scene. And sort of, I want to, if you wouldn't, without giving too much of the film away, just sort of how she got into uh, that scene in, in the, was the early 60s, late 50s, early 60s, right? Was that, yeah. Go ahead. Um, uh, well, I mean, Karen first became interested in folk music in Oklahoma when she was right. young where she learned it from her family. She lived in a place where she wasn't really in Oklahoma, where she grew up. She wasn't really able to like make decisions for herself or figure out who she was as a person. She was married very young, twice. So once she kind of figured out what she wanted to do and that it was music, New York seemed like the logical place. It was kind of where everybody was headed at that point. I mean, er anyone that Karen sort of cared to be around. Even because even predating Karen, you have like the beat poets that had already been there. Like it was it was the place to be. And it just worked out timing wise for her. It may have been one of the only things in her life that worked mm -hmm. out timing wise was that she went there just at the point when the folk revival was happening. Yeah. So she just got immersed in this amazing scene that we all know and love very well. 
especially us as New Yorkers, you know. And you yeah. talk about like the vagabond lifestyle and and she and her being like uncompromising. And I think like that was part of the reason that her music will last a long time, but also part of the reason that she wasn't able to make it successfully in a financial place. Like she 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 was uncompromising, wasn't able, wasn't willing to fit it within the molds of some of the record labels and things. So um, she wasn't able to really make real money doing it. I don't remember who said it, but they said that when she arrived and started playing around, uh, Bob Dylan was there. I'm sure that a lot of the people that we've come to know from that folk scene were there. And then they made the point that she made a bigger splash initially than, than Bob Dylan did. Because as somebody who, who play, not only just sounds traditional, but she apparently played traditionally in terms of the way she approached the guitar and, and how she played it. So I can imagine that that was uh, quite a calling card for her. But also, I'd like a little bit more context uh, uh, in terms of her her impact when she arrived and was beginning to be heard in New York City. Um, Richard? Yeah, we spoke to a lot of her friends that like were, were on the scene then, and and it was Peter Walker who said she made a bigger splash than Dylan, and, and Peter Stample remembers seeing her for the first time and just being blown away. She, she was uh, an authentic folk, is what he called her, there, and there weren't that many people on the scene that had come from the West, had come from Oklahoma, and, and were had actually lived the roots music. And I think, you know, her having done that really helped make that splash. Yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, that scene in the village at that time was comprised mostly of artists. The artists and the musicians love Karen. They love they loved her then and musicians still love her now. She's she's well known amongst musicians. So she was kind of in her element at that point. She was like in her scene with her people. So they respected her. But then once the labels started coming in and scooping up artists, they still wanted cleaner, more uh, uh, marketable artists like Peter, Paul and Mary or something. Right. Right. Or the journeyman. Right. Or yeah. the journeyman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that's, I'm going to leave that for, for the viewers to see. That's, that's an interesting thing. And that, that's one of those where th that's the what ifs question, right? When, when, you know, what if she becomes part of John Phillips's later iteration, right? What would that have sounded like? Would they have been as successful? There are a lot of questions that will remain unanswered based on, on that. But uh, one of minor listeners were speaking with the co-directors of this terrific new film, in My Own Time, a portrait of Karen Dalton, and that'd be Robert Yapkowitz, as well as Richard Pete, the co-directors of the film. And it is going to be at Doc NYC starting on November 11th. And this is a virtual film festival. I hope only for a little while will we be dealing with virtual film festivals. I fear we will not. But uh, anyway, uh, I hope we will not, pardon me. And uh, But I fear we will. <laughs> but you can check it out. Go to NYC. Uh, I'm sorry, docnyc.net to find out how and when and where you can uh, watch this in my own time, a portrait of Karen Dalton. Um, she had an interesting relationship with Tim Harden. And um, he's one of those guys also that I think is kind of a musician's musician guy that wrote a lot of really wonderful songs, kind of below the radar. Dave Von Ronk. These guys were there at the beginning, but Dylan caught fire and that was it. And that sort of he sort of sucked the air, and not not uh, not that there's anything wrong with Bob Dylan. It's not no, a sure. knock on. I'm not casting shade on Bob Dylan here, but but that's just the nature of that scene, right? It was just he caught fire, and that was it, yeah, for a lot of people. But uh, Tim Harden, well, to, you know, wow, he's a great songwriter, and they had a relationship of some kind, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. They were close. They met in the village, 
in the early days, actually in like 1960 or 61. And like all the other musicians on the scene, Tim was really drawn to Karen. He was impressed by her natural talent and they stayed in touch. And then they became closer over the years, eventually in Colorado, basically living together or living very close to each other. I think Karen really respected Tim as a songwriter because that was something she was hesitant to jump into songwriting. And I think he really respected her as a musician and a singer and, and some, and the way she adapted songs. Right. Um, Cause I can hear her influence in his voice for mm-hmm. sure. 100% and yeah. vice versa. I mean, they were, someone in the movie says they were musical soulmates essentially. Well, to, to your point about um, her not being big on songwriting and more interpretive, we do have the, the journal that she kept in, uh, in the film that really kind of helps is a sort of a through line to narrate her life and her feelings at that time. And um, which is by the way, voiced by a contemporary artist who's terrific Angel Olsen. Congratulations on getting her involved. Um, Isn't she a great, she's great. So, um, so it gives you context for her in various points in the film. You kind of see what's going through her mind and her, her and her thoughts are were the, were they they survived all of this uh craziness of her life somehow the 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 diaries how did you get a, get a hold of those they um right after Karen passed away uh sh- there was a shed behind her house that had a whole, whole bunch of tapes and and journals and that was sort of all of the stuff that she had saved and that um was lost in a fire in in the early 90s and then what was so that, you know, there could be hundreds more songs if it weren't for that fire. Um, but what was uh, left from the fire, didn't, didn't burn up, was um, with Peter Walker, a friend of hers and a musician up in Woodstock. Um, that was our first trip. We went up and, and spoke to Peter and he shared her journals and, and, and diaries with us um, and just gave us full access to all of that. And, and all of that was eventually burned in a fire in, in 2018, just a couple months after we had, had photographed and videoed it. So, Oh my uh, God. Yeah. Luck, lucky timing there. Well, thankfully you did get that there. Yeah. Yeah. Th- there's how many albums for our listeners who are going to be looking into the life of Karen Dalton after you, they've seen the film, how much music is there out there of hers? Um, she did two studio albums during her career, one in 1969 and one in 1971. And then over the past 10 years, there have been about three albums of yeah. home demos that have come out. Okay. There's a, a box set that was just released that um, has some uh, really beautiful photos and pamphlets and, and a lot of, uh, you know, her music, obviously. There's albums and uh, a couple of CDs in the box set. But I think I am hearing you say is there's about five albums worth of material of hers, right? Yeah, okay. Well, the last thing I, I have for you, uh, you uh, as your executive producer, you brought aboard from Wenders, who uh, need I say more? I mean, uh, so uh, fantastic! Congratulations on bringing him into the project. How was he helpful, or in what way did he sort of guide you or aid you, or however? Yeah, we were we were about like halfway through the edit and trying to make some big decisions. We had just done a screening for um, friends and, and family and for feedback and got a lot of notes. Um, and our friend Nick Shoemaker at UTA just partnered with us to sell the film. And he was friends with Vim and, and was talking about the movie. Vim said that he was a fan of Karen's and, and watched our cut and just came back with some incredible notes, um, some things that Rob and I had been debating on for a while. 
Um, but when Vim vendors tells you to do it, it's, it's much easier. And, and it was a, a lot of just, you know, bigger story arcs and incorporating um, the journals. We didn't have as much of the journal um, in the film in the first version that he saw. And, and he really pushed us to incorporate that more and make it um, uh, a heavier piece of the film, which was a great, great idea. Yeah. Good note. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and also the animation there's some cool animation in here as well uh so there's some beautiful just it's a beautiful film it's it's yeah it's wonderful congratulations to both of you doc oh, nyc you. world premiere all of it and uh thank you for bringing karen dalton you know to uh to a place where people can now start to to look into it on their own and find out more about her and appreciate her talent an amazing yeah prodigious talent she was and uh uh it's uh it's a shame she didn't run lo around longer than she was so yeah but yeah but thank you thank you thank you so much for having yeah, us yeah. thanks for having us thanks for spreading the word on karen yeah you're, and, you're yeah, well, NYC, they're all working really hard to do this virtual festival and, and they're doing a really great job over there you're very welcome again i want to remind our listeners that we've been speaking with robert kapowitz uh, as well as richard pete they are the co-directors of this wonderful new documentary film, In My Own Time, A Portrait of Karen Dalton. Thank you. Cool. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Music